Psalm number 45. To the chief musician upon Shushanim, for the sons of Korah, Maskel, a song of loves. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people, and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a the gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Amen. And we know God will add his own blessing to the reading of his word. This psalm celebrates a royal marriage. It depicts the marriage between a king and a princess. And that explains the title. It is a song of loves. And naturally, a royal marriage always excites a lot of attention in a nation. And in all probability, this song celebrates the marriage of Solomon to one of his wives, perhaps his marriage to the Egyptian princess. And this aroused a a lot of excitement and celebration within the hearts of the the nation. And this psalm was written as a a song of worship. And so in the light of the, the marriage, the people were coming together to worship God and to celebrate this event. And that is why we come to the verse 17, the very end, therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. There was a note of gladness and and happiness. 
But this psalm takes us away and beyond Solomon. Because as our Lord said, a greater than Solomon is here. We don't just see Solomon here. In fact, ultimately, we look beyond Solomon to Christ. Because we know that Solomon ended his days very badly. Solomon was a man noted for his immorality and his many wives and his concubines, and he got things badly wrong. And so from that perspective, he certainly is a a very lowly type of our blessed Savior. But if we just forget Solomon for a moment, and I think we have to, we see a king here. We see a princess, and we have great celebration. We have praises to God in the light of a marriage. And whenever we come to the New Testament, we discover that this psalm indeed, by virtue of the interpretation given upon it by the Spirit of God, is indeed a song of worship celebrating Christ and his marriage to the church. If you look at verse 6 of Psalm 45, we read, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And then whenever you come to the book of Hebrews chapter 1, we read the quotation from the psalm as Paul sets forth the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Because he says in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, But unto the Son, he saith, unto the Son, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That's one of the proof texts for the deity of Christ. If you're ever talking to someone who does not believe in the deity of Christ, a Jehovah's Witness, for example, will hear the Son is addressed. His throne is forever and ever. Thy throne, O God. Christ is addressed as the one who is God here in Hebrews chapter 1. But Hebrews chapter 1 is a quotation from the Psalm 45. Therefore, this is a messianic psalm. It's one of the greatest messianic psalms in the Scriptures. It shows us Christ. It shows us the gospel. It reveals a Savior who has taken sinners and made those sinners his bride. Because that's what we are tonight. We are the bride of Jesus Christ. But this psalm also demonstrates that our salvation is eternal. There is no divorce in the mind and purpose of God where the marriage between Christ and his church is concerned. He does not put us away. We are bound to him by a covenant, a covenant that he himself has made. He does not cast out his blood-bought people. And so this psalm is a psalm of assurance, and it's a psalm of, of great triumph, and it is a psalm of enduring love, the love that Christ has for us. These are blessed and happy themes. And so let us think about Christ's marriage to his church here from this psalm of loves. And first of all, we have 
the heavenly bridegroom. And this is the verses 1 through to 8. Here we see the character of Christ. We see his person. We see him for what he is. This is our beloved. This is our friend. This is his character. We have his royalty because the writer of the psalm, he's writing about the king. Christ is king. We're married to the king. We have his beauty in the verse 2. Thou art fairer than the children of men. We do not know what Jesus Christ looked like while he was upon this earth. We cannot know that. It was not God's design to show us that, because if we knew that, it would very quickly become an idol, and the Lord knows that. People have worshipped representations of what people thought Christ looked like. Of course, that's a very bad thing. But the representations that we have of Christ, pictorial representations, we have one in the book of Revelation, we have another one in the Song of Solomon. And the whole lesson is that he is beautiful, the fairest among 10,000. He is altogether lovely, we read in the Song of Solomon. But this description of Christ goes from his appearance to his words, because you look at verse 2 again, grace is poured into thy lips. It's always good to take time to read the actual words of Christ. In some of our Bibles, those words are in red print, red letter words. Read Christ's sermons. Read his lessons. Read what he personally has had to say to people. It should thrill our souls. Beautiful words, wonderful words. Words of life and beauty. The grace that's poured into his lips. Grace poured in that that grace might flow out. And whenever we read the scriptures, we should read the word with the view to hearing a word from the Lord. For wherever in the Bible we read the scriptures, there's a word from the Lord for us. There should always be a word of grace. And then we have his superiority. And from verses 3 through to 5, we have him pictured as a great warrior. The sword is upon his thigh. He's riding prosperously upon his chariot. His right hand teacheth the terrible things. That's the sword in the right hand. His arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. He is triumphant in battle. An ancient king was always measured by his military prowess. If he was a king, then he was expected to be a warrior. He was expected to win battles. He was expected to put his life in the line. Christ is the all-conquering Savior. He won the great battle at Calvary when he triumphed over hell for us, when he triumphed over the curse of God's law for us, and he triumphed the resurrection when he finally defeated death. And hallelujah, he lives today, sustained by the power of an endless life. He died for our redemption, and he rose again for our justification. And then you have his eternity. His throne is forever and ever. 
a throne that will never end. Kingdoms of this world come and go. Rulers come and go. They have their little time upon the stage. But Christ reigns forever. You have his righteousness also. The scepter of the kingdom is a right scepter. The scepter is the great symbol of power. Christ's power is always exercised in righteousness. And you never meet a righteous government on earth. But his deliberations are always righteous. He makes no mistakes. And then you have his anointing. In verse, in verse 8, Thou lovest righteousness and hated wickedness. In verse 7, Therefore God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereof they have made thee glad. And here we see the name Christ. He's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. The Messiah literally is the anointed one. Christ literally is the anointed one. That's what the Greek word means. He is anointed. In the Old Testament, three offices were always anointed. Prophets were anointed, priests were anointed, and kings were anointed. And there we see Christ in his threefold office as our prophet, telling us God's word. As our priest, dying for us and praying for us, interceding for us. As our king, ruling over us. There we see him as the king who sits upon a throne. He's also a priest, the priestly king. Here we see the king who's also a prophet. Here we see a king who governs for us, and he is anointed. Now, whenever an anointing took place in the Old Testament, the oil was poured upon the head, and the oil flowed right down the hair, down the garments. The whole of the garments were saturated. The oil flowed right down to the very bottoms of the garments. There was a lot of oil used. There's been talk about King Charles's anointing and the special anointing oil and the, the consecration of it and the, the way it's made up. And it's all taken from Old Testament imagery. And while there's certain symbolism in it, ultimately, that oil will make him no better. He needs the grace of God in his heart. And we should pray for that for our earthly king. But Christ's anointing, it speaks not so much of an anointing with physical oil, but it speaks of the anointing of the Spirit. Because we are told that the man, Christ Jesus, possessed something that no other man ever possessed. He had an abundance of God's Spirit, the Spirit without measure. That's what he had. Whenever he spoke as the man, Christ, the Spirit was speaking without measure. The infinity of the Spirit was bound up in the man, Christ Jesus. It is described as an oil of gladness that sets him apart from all else, sets him apart from the angels, sets him apart from all other men. Christ's anointing, anointed for this special work, our one and only Savior. But then we have this description, the aroma of the garments. Murados cassia, out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. It was Henry Baraclough who wrote the hymn about the ivory palaces. And he spiritualized the meaning of all the, the different elements of this special oil. 
My Lord, his garments so wondrous fine, and mirror their texture fills. Its fragrance reached to this heart of mine, with joy my feeling, feeling being thrills. And there the, the myrrh is the, the, that, that which has a very distinctive smell, the aroma of it. Then he went on to say in the next verse, His life had also its sorrows sore, for aloes had a part. And when I think of the cross he bore, my ears with teardrop, my eyes with teardrops start. And there the, the aloes associated with sorrow, associated with pain, associated with death. And then you have the, the cassia, Baraklok said, His garments too were in cassia dipped with healing and a touch. Each time my feet in some sin have slipped, he took me from its clutch, the healing power of the cassia, the aroma of Christ, the fragrance of Christ, the sorrows of Christ, the healing, how he heals the sin-sick soul. Then you have that great conclusion to that hymn. In garments, glorious he will come to open wide the door, and I shall enter my heavenly home to dwell forevermore. The garments... The garments of our Savior. That's a whole study in its own, you know. The garments of Christ. I think Dr. Paisley did that a long time ago. He produced a set of tapes. Some of you may remember them that remember back that far. I remember them being in our house as a child. The, the, the garments of Christ. The, the swaddling clothes. The, the garment that was one piece that they gambled over. The purple robe. Ah, there's a whole study there, isn't there? The garments of Christ and his humanity. Let's also think of the beautiful bride here. And the beautiful bride is set forth from the verses 9 through to 13. It is evident she is a royal bride. She is described as a king's daughter. The verse 13, for example. And there's a glory with this bride. And... This bride is a fitting representation of the glory of the church. And yet, the glory of the church is not our glory. It is our glory, but it's not ours by right. It's not ours morally in that it doesn't come from our own righteousness. The glory of the church is Christ's righteousness. This, this woman only became a queen because the king married her. And ultimately, it is Christ that makes us glorious. It's his work in our lives that saves us. Nothing of us, it's all of him. And it's a marriage that speaks of union, and marriage is all about a union between a man and a woman. And, and here we have this union, this sacred union, between Christ and his church, that we are united to Christ. We have a union with Christ. We have an intimacy with Christ. We belong to him. This is what we are being taught here. Let's think about the bridegroom of this bride. We think it away from Christ. Because what do we read of him in relation to this bride? In the verse 11. So shall the king greatly desire by beauty. We are Christians today because the king has desired us. And he still desires us. His heart is toward us. His heart loves us. And yet it says here that this king 
desire her beauty. Yet we have no beauty. We're nothing but sinners. We're wretched and we're vile. We have no beauty for the king to desire. The beauty that he desires is the beauty that he creates for us and in us. That's the beauty that he desires. And he loves us. And he gives us that beauty and he gives us that glory. And he gives us that robe that he has fashioned for us. Mrs. Cousin wrote that hymn based on some of the dying words of Samuel Rutherford. The bride eyes not her garment, but her dear bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on the king of grace, not at the crown he giveth, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's lamb. Sometimes there's so much spoken about the the glories of heaven, the golden streets, and the place where the sun never sets, and the fact that there'll be no curse and no sorrow, no crying, and all that is wonderful. But you know, it counts for nothing if Christ is not there. Ultimately, he's the one we're going to see. And he's the one we're going to worship throughout the endless ages of eternity. The one who will never cease desiring us. We have her garments in the verse 13. The king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. Her clothing is of wrought gold. And as I said in verse 14, she's brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. She's dressed in a way that's fitting for a queen, for a princess. But this corresponds to our justification, that we wear the garments of his righteousness. And of course, gold speaks of purity. She's dressed in wrought gold because she's dressed in garments that are pure. And we have the garments of Christ's righteousness. That's our dress. You know, if God were to look at us and see us as we are, by nature, there'd be nothing but the old filthy rags. Even the very best that we do, old filthy rags, prayers that we offer, Bible studies, efforts to obey the Lord, it's just filthy rags. But then he sees the righteousness of Christ. And what glory that is. Her character is spoken of as well. For verse 13 says, The king's daughter is all glorious within. He doesn't just desire her because of her appearance. He desires her because of her character, kind of a woman she is. The Lord creates a moral beauty within our hearts. You know, we can never divorce justification from sanctification. We can never say, Oh, yes, I'm justified doesn't matter how I live, doesn't matter how I think, doesn't matter what decisions I make, it does, because the two things are united. Those that have the Lord's beautiful garments, they also have the Spirit's work within, and the Spirit is constantly working upon us, fashioning us, molding us, making us Christ-like. And then we have our past. This is a great evangelical text, the verse 10. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. She's leaving her home behind. She's leaving her home country behind. And she's going to enter into a new relationship with a king, with a husband, and a new land. And she is to forget her own people and her father's house. And that's exactly what happens to us whenever we are saved. We're to forget the world. We're to put the world behind us. We're to look unto Jesus. We're to 
embrace him. It's a gospel text that I am his and he is mine forever and forever. And then, thirdly, this is a happy marriage because verses 14 through to 17, they talk about the, the joy, the gladness. There is the entrance. She is being brought unto the king in verse 14. The virgins, her companions, her bridesmaids, as we would put it, they're following her. So here we have the, the bridal procession as she comes to meet her king. And there is gladness and rejoicing as they enter the king's palace. The day we were saved was a happy day. I think this represents the moment of our salvation when we are brought to Christ. We come before him. An unforgettable moment to remember what it was like. They are your first trust at Christ. Sometimes as we go through life, we lose sight of what that was like. We need to always get back to that place. When I first saw the light, the burden of my heart rolled away. And then we have, there's a promise here. The promise that this marriage would be a fruitful marriage in terms of children. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children. The fathers would be replaced by the children. There would be children to carry on the name to another generation, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. And does that not speak of sons and daughters being born into the church? Not just children being born of church families, but those children being saved, born again. Sinners being brought into the fellowship of the church, saved, washed in the blood of Jesus, so that the cause of Christ and of the gospel can, goes on and continues from one generation to the next. And that's how the gospel makes progress. And yet, there's a lesson here for the whole world. And thou mayest make princes in all the earth. Thank God, even in the Old Testament, God had an eye to the whole earth, to the gospel going into all the earth. And then there's a legacy here in closing. This happy marriage produces a legacy, produces a blessing. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. Infinite happiness comes about as a result of the marriage between Christ and the church. You know, happiness comes to heaven because of the marriage between Christ and the church. And that's a very difficult thing to understand because heaven's happiness has always been complete. If Jesus Christ had never become man, if there had never been a fall, and if there had never even been angels created, heaven would have been happy and complete with Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Nothing could add to the glory and nothing could add to the joy. And when God created the angels, nothing again could add to the glory and nothing could add to the joy. And even when Lucifer fell, there was no disappointment in the sense of sorrow as we experience sorrow because nothing can enter into heaven that defiles, even though one of their number had rebelled. So we can't understand how heaven can become infinitely happy in a way that it never was happy before because it always was complete. But yet we are told that whenever a soul comes to Christ, the angels, they rejoice. 
And there is something so special and so wonderful that never happened before about the salvation of sinners and about Christ making himself a bride. And you know, the angels from forever so long, from, from the moment God gave the promise that, that there would be a Redeemer coming, the angels have been watching the plan of God carefully, the gathering together of that bride. And they will rejoice at that great event, the marriage supper of the Lamb, when all of God's people from all ages are gathered around that great celebratory occasion as we rejoice with our beloved forever. And what a moment that's going to be. So heaven is blessed because of this marriage. God saving sinners that deserve hell, giving them heaven. Heaven is blessed. Isn't that amazing? But the world is blessed. The gospel goes places where it never would have gone because of this marriage. People tonight are receiving the word from men and women that have spent their lives going to some distant culture to bring them the gospel. The world is still being blessed through this marriage between Christ and the church. And so it will be until the day Jesus comes and we are with him forever. As we think of this great type, let us praise the Lord that he ever could bring this poor lost sinner into his house of wine. May the Lord bless these thoughts to your heart and to your soul.